the explosive new film, Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost, exposes secrets behind the government's takedown of General Michael Flynn. Flynn knew what the intel world had been up to. He ordered the first audit of the use of contractors. This set off alarm bells. He told the truth. He was the most dangerous person for Donald Trump to hire. They had to get rid of Flynn. Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost. Available now. Watch it today. Go to SalemNow.com. SalemNow.com. Weekday evenings on FM 101.5 and AM 1400, The Patriot. It's 6 o'clock talk with Daryl Wood. Host Daryl Wood brings you the day's news and trending topics as only he can with a unique blend of conservative opinion, constitutionalism, and thought-provoking analysis. Join the conversation. 6 o'clock talk with Daryl Wood. A daily look at the news in a way you won't hear anywhere else. Tune in to 6 o'clock talk with Daryl Wood on FM 101.5 and AM 1400, The Patriot. Or stream at PatriotDetroit.com. You are in, in what part of the country? <laughs> Southwest Colorado. Wonderful. How are you picking us up? Oh, I stream you guys on my uh, iPhone every day. Fantastic. Um, I, I am a resident of Sterling Heights, but uh, I frequently come to Southwest Colorado. I am just thrilled to be hearing from you out there in Colorado. Continue to listen, tune in again, and call at your earliest convenience. Godspeed. Run to Win with Daryl Wood, Monday through Friday at 4 p.m. on Faith Talk Detroit. Welcome to the Jewish Hour. I'm your host, Herschel Finman. We've got a wonderful show for you. And this week, this half hour of the show, we have Professor Omar Baum, who is a professor at UCLA, has written a book called The Holocaust and North Africa, which you might be scratching your head like a lot of people are. Holocaust, North Africa, what? So that's exactly the point. And uh, amazing book, and we'll be talking about that. We have wonderful Jewish music, all new stuff, sprinkled throughout the show. We have the portion of the week will be discussed in the second half hour of the show, which that's the portion of Lech Lecha can be found in Genesis 12 and following. A really amazing Hasidic story. Before we do anything else, let's go right to the news. <laughs> Israeli President Yitzhak Herzog met with President Biden in Washington on Wednesday. The two discussed upcoming elections in both countries and combating anti-Semitism. In the meantime, Israeli Defense Minister Benny Gantz was in Ankara to meet with Turkish Prime Minister Erdogan. It was the first time in 10 years that a cabinet member visited Turkey. Israeli planes struck three targets this week in Syria, killing four members of Hezbollah. Israel said it will step up attacks on Syria with the increased uptick in arms coming in from Iran. A 20-year-old yeshiva student remains in serious but stable condition following a stabbing attack by a 16-year-old Israeli Arab. Police shot and killed the Arab. The leader of the terrorist group Lion's Den was killed when his motorcycle mysteriously exploded. This group is responsible for dozens of terrorist attacks near Shechem. Also, the IDF forces went into Shechem and arrested 17 members of the Lion's Den 
terrorist organization. Four anti-Semitic incidents occurred in Brooklyn this week. A Jewish man was assaulted in the Crown Heights section. Another Jewish man, also in Crown Heights, was punched in the face following a traffic accident. Three yeshiva students were beaten and egged by a group of sh- a group shouting "Free Palestine," and a woman and infant were attacked in Williamsburg. And finally, this is really good news. It began raining in Israel this week, and we'll talk about that in the story at the end of the show. And that's the news. Why go to a hospital to get healthy? At Encompass Healthcare, you get the -the state-of-the-art wound care like in a hospital. The same medicines, the same everything without being in a hospital. Why put yourself at risk of getting a hospital-borne infection? Did you know that last year, one in six people died in America because of infections they got in hospitals? Encompass Healthcare is an outpatient facility. That means you get your wound care treatment and then go home. There are no wait times at Encompass Healthcare like in ERs. Healthcare is personal and works better, faster, and easier. Encompass Healthcare provides a state-of-the-art outpatient facility close to where you live. Call 248-624-9800. That's 624-9800. Auto accident, workman's comp, and most insurances accepted. Encompass Healthcare's goal is to get you healthy with as little disturbance to your daily activities. Call 248-624-9800. Herschel Finman here. You're listening to the Jewish Hour. We have a rare treat. We have on Professor Omar Baum from UCLA, University of California at Los Angeles, who has put together a compendium together with Sarah Brevia Stein, The Holocaust and North Africa. And most people would put a parenthesis and a question mark after that that title, because this is a, a, a four two here known. Nobody talks about this. How are you today, Omar? I am doing great. On this Friday, I'm doing great. Thank you. Thank you for 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 coming on and taking the time. Okay, so <clears throat> the only thing I know um, that I ever remembered, even as like a kid, I knew that there. The, the history of like the World War II, and uh, I had a uh, an English teacher who actually served as a tank operator in the Sahara, and he would tell war stories when he when he wasn't teaching English, which I think was most of the time. Now that I think about it, but you have in the, mentioned there's a movie called Casablanca, 1943, with Humphrey Bogart and Ingmar Bergman, and there they have the words mentioned concentration camps in North Africa. So That's true. So as yep. a kid, so as a kid I knew that there it was that's when I saw the movie. So I knew that there was something there. But in, going back and looking over 1943 Americans didn't really know what concentrations were. They thought they were just sort of like prisoner camps or whatever they were. We, they weren't getting the full picture of it. So there there definitely everybody knew that there were concentration camps on it, but so why is it now, then, that in 2022, when you say the Holocaust in North Africa, you get this quizzical look on people's faces? That's a great question. But it needs a little bit of background here, Please. if you allow me. So first of all, we have to understand why North Africa became part of World War II. And to do that, we have to go back before the war, before the war started, before the invasion, the German invasion of Poland. 
And uh, so let me give you a little bit of background. Let, let me give our audience a little bit of background. So North Africa, which includes here Morocco, Algeria, Tunisia, and Libya, I'm talking mostly about these four countries, you can add Mauritania in today's political discourse on Egypt to some, to some extent. Some, sometimes Egypt is part of North Africa, sometimes it's not, depending on the time. But we're going to focus on these four countries, Libya, Tunisia, Morocco, and Algeria. These are all colonies of Libya was colonized by Italy, Morocco, and Tunisia, were, um, and Algeria were colonized by France. And the northern part of Morocco and the southern part of Morocco were colonized by Spain. So even before the war, you have these countries under the colonial yoke called these three European countries. And so what's, what's, what connects the story again to, or to Europe is the Jewish community of Morocco, Algeria, Tunisia, and Libya. We had one of the largest Jewish communities in the Arab and the Muslim world in this region. Morocco had the largest one, about 250,000 to, to 270,000 Jews lived in Morocco. Around 140,000 lived in Algeria, between 80 and 100,000 lived in Tunisia, and around 40 to 60,000 lived in Libya. So you're talking about a, an important percentage of the community of the population in the Muslim population in the region living there. And this Muslim population can be, was, was um, uh, broken in two categories, Arabs and Amazigh or Berbers. So this is, the, this is the political landscape as well as the um, social landscape and the population landscape we're talking about here. We're talking about a very important population Jewish population, which is under the control of a colonial, uh, European colonial uh, authority in, in the region, which, and these colonial authorities were central to the war. So you had France after the, after the colonization of, after the German invasion of France, you have this, the, the France was separated in two, two regions. The North was colonized, was under the control of the Nazis and the South, where they have the Vichy government, which is a collaboration. Its government was, uh, uh, was still in control of its colonies. So the colonies, even after the German occupation, never were never uh, given the, were, their, their, their control was maintained by, by the French, uh, colonial French uh, authority, which is collaborating with the Nazis. Uh, Italy maintained its control over over uh, over Libya, and the France maintained its, uh, its its authority over Tunisia, Morocco, and West Algeria, as well as West Africa. Some of the colonies in Senegal and Mali were still were also under the control of the Vichy government. So this is the landscape I want to start with. Now to get to your question. Why now? Why talking about the, 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 the discussion or this academic discussions about World War II and its influence 
over North Africa were very timid to a certain extent, I would say, um, uh, because there was mostly an interest on what happened in Europe. There was never uh, there, there, some scholars in Israel, some scholars in France, uh, and I'll get back to the French, to the French context. The France did not engage with with its with its history of World War II until the 1990s. So, uh, and then you have even North Africans, uh, North African Jews and North African Muslims also, because of political and nationalistic re- reasons, some of them we know, some of them we don't, didn't also engage with this question until post-1990s, early 2000s. So that's where we get. We get to this conversation really after 2000, mostly, even though, as I said, there were some studies done in the 1980s and 1990s. And one of the books that I think, uh, and they have to, uh, that was major as far as the, this launching this conversation post 2000, post uh, after 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 uh, 9/11, there was this book by Robert Satloff, who 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 went and uh, tried to study um, to see if there were some righteous among the Muslims during this period. And his book mostly focused on the on some of these camps. And although he didn't go into some uh, major details about all of these camps, but he focused on some of these camps. Okay. Could our, so, Satisfine and I, go sorry. Go ahead, go ahead, finish. So, so Satisfine and I, we come to this, we wanted to, base, first of all, engage with these theoretical questions, whether can we speak about the Holocaust and North Africa or the Holocaust in North Africa? And then the second question, what really in this in this region, both at the bureaucratic level as well as the daily life, what happened, how Muslims, Jews, and other and Europeans engaged with, with this question. So that's the context. Okay, terrific. So, uh, Amar, so, so tell me, so when we use the term concentration camp, and that has a, yeah. conjures a certain image. Was it the same in North Africa? Were there people who were fed diets of 250 calories a day and worked to death? And were there death gas chambers and et cetera, et cetera? Yes and no. So let me, let me be very specific here. There were no death camps in North Africa. No death camps. I, uh, in the sense that there was no gas chambers, but there were three types of camps. There were um, detention camps, there were disciplinary camps, and labor camps between Libya all the way to Morocco. And to some extent, we have cases in Mali, in Senegal, and in Guinea. So even in West Africa, you have a few camps, about six camps. The majority of the camps are located in Morocco, Tunisia, Algeria, and Libya. How many camps are we talking about? Under the control of the Vichy. We are talking between around close to, I would say, 200 camps. That's a lot. So so let me explain where these, these camps fit. There is a story behind these camps, mostly when we talk about France in particular. In the 19th century, France had this project to build a railroad system that connects sub-Saharan Africa, 
what we call today probably the, around the countries of Niger and Mali to the Mediterranean and then you go and then to Senegal. So the idea is to build a railroad system that connects the sea to the desert. And the idea behind this is to extract, to you take out all the mines, all the natural resources, and then for industries in Europe. That was the idea. They didn't have the labor. There was a huge debate about it in the military, in the French military, and then that project was put to pause until the 20th century. Here comes Vichy, here comes the Nazis, and then they said, boom, there is a moment where we can revive this, even though they started it before, some, some years before World War II. But it was in just to certain countries, uh, to certain areas, in certain areas in North Africa. So they, so they needed labor. We had a free labor. This is where these refugees, these internees come. This is where the, the, the excerpt you mentioned in Casablanca, the movie Casablanca, the camps is, is, is mentioned. So, so the, these camps included, I'll talk to you about, about the population and what was going on in these camps. Most of the population was either European, there were Europeans, there were no, there were almost no native Jews in these camps, it, it, to, to the exception of some camps, like Camp Bedou in Algeria and some camps Boudnib in Morocco. There was a few, a few local Jews for political reasons, but the majority were Europeans, Jews and non-Jews, and, and Spanish Republicans. Remember, in 1939, the Spanish Civil War just ended. So you have all these Spanish Republicans who lost the war, fled Franco, and ended up in camps, in refugee camps in, 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 uh, in France, like Camp Le Vernet, Camp Bougours, and other camps. And they lived on these camps. After Vichy took over, they were turned into concentration camps. Some of them actually became the camps that uh, where, where, where Europe, where Jews were taken from France all the way to uh, Auschwitz and, and, and dead camps. So what happened in the, so the, what happened in these camps in North Africa? Um, people were moved from Europe at the beginning and until the Germans said, no, we're not moving Jews anymore. We're going to send them to the dead camps in Europe. So they were moved from Europe, from France through Marseille, and then they were sent to Oran, the city of Oran in Algeria, or Algiers, or sometimes people fled on their own. They ended up in Casablanca and other cities, and then they were, they were stopped by the police, and then they were taken to detention camp first, and then they were separated from able bodies and people who can work or not, and then they were taken to these, to these, to these camps. And they were, they were moved around between Algeria and Morocco, and sometimes they were moved from Senegal to Morocco to work on, on these camps. And that's, so that's what a lot of the, these railroad systems that you see today in some parts of Morocco and Algeria were railroad systems, especially in the desert, in areas around the desert. Some of them are not functioning anymore, but we still have signs of them still exist. That's where these, the, the, what these people do. So they were allowed to see, uh, to have some food they were allowed to get books. They were allowed to practice their religion, whether they are Christians or Jews. A lot of Jews were allowed to go to neighboring villages where there is native Jews, and actually they 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 spent Shabbat sometimes, or at least they prayed there. 
So we have some of these cases. So it's not, this is why I would say it's yes, because of the labor, the forced labor, and no, because there is no case, we don't have cases of death camps there. That's, that's really important. So, so I would say that the system was designed in a way to use this labor to accomplish certain projects that Vichy had in mind, colonial projects, but it was not then, and of course, a lot of people died doing this work. We don't know the exact number. A lot of material exists in the archives of the United States Holocaust Memorial Museum, Yad Vashem, and other and other and, and, and other archives. But we we we're writing this we're writing this project, and this is where my second my second ed, uh, edited volume with with Sarah Stein comes to. It's a called Wartime in North Africa, a documentary. History, 1934-1950, where we try to really tell through the stories, the voices of regular people, what happened in these camps and how they arrived there. We talked about the shortage of food, famine, uh, uh, need of shoes, uh, their interaction with local people, their interaction with Senegalese tirailleurs. These are uh, uh, Senegalese uh, indigenous people who were used or forced to be part of the French army uh, at, at some point. So all of these, all of these, convert, all of these political, social issues, we, we discuss those in this, in this second book, which comes to add to the narratives of what laid, we laid out in the first edited volume, The Holocaust and North Africa. Okay, thank you. Our guest today is Professor Omar Baum, who is a professor at UCLA, together with, has written, put together a compendium together with Professor Sarah Stein, The Holocaust and North Africa. Uh, so tell them, what, what piqued your interest? What made this, you, you've, you've basically put together in the last couple of years three volumes on this subject. Why are you doing this? Um, this is a very uh, personal and important question that has to do with writing the history of not only Jewish-Muslim relations. I'm, I'm, as a Muslim from, south, from southern Morocco, I, my parents and generations of my grandparents and my great-grandparents um, lived with Jews in the desert. They lived with Jews in cities and villages. And this is an important story for me as a, as a Moroccan as an American and as a Muslim, uh, uh, as, 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 a, as a practicing Muslim. It's a story of two communities, Jewish and Muslim communities, that lived in Morocco for centuries. And it's important to tell the story of the Jewish community in the same way we're telling the story of the Muslim community. And this is where, so my first book, it's called Memories of Absence, How Muslims Remembered Jews in Morocco. It's a story of four generations of Muslims from the same villages in the south where I grew up, where I was born, and who lived with Jews. And their, 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 their kids who never met a Jew after, after the majority of the, of the Jews of the region left in 1962 for Israel and places in the world in France and Canada and Latin America and all the Americas in general. So the, telling the story of what happened to Jews during the Holocaust or 
how Jews of North Africa were impacted by what happened during the Holocaust is not only, I think, is an obligation, but also is an important educational story to tell to our kids these days in these times of rising hatred, rising anti-Semitism, Islamophobia. And when I see, when I hear the stories of people, the prayers in the synagogue and in Morocco and the sounds of the prayers, and then you jump from the village, one place to, to go to a place where you have a mosque, there's too much, there's so much that's shared than, 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 than when, what we talk about these days in terms of divisions. So I, I, am, I wear the hat along with scholars like my collaborator, Dr. Sarah Stein, of a scholar here to tell what happened. But the objective as an educator is really to try to make sure that future generations look at each other and listen to each other before we start shouting at each other, which is what's, what's I think what's, what we're doing these days. That's my that's my that's what drives me and that's what that's my belief. That's what my parents who never they were never they never went to school. But they went to school of life and they saw they learned from the street uh to respect their neighbors, whether they are Jewish, whether they're Muslim, whether they're Arabs, whether they are non Arabs. That's that's that that's the story I'm trying to tell. That's very commendable. Um, okay, so the Jewish population of North Africa before World War II was about half a million. The Jewish population in North Africa after World War II was probably slightly less than half a million. So there wasn't this impact on the Jewish community in North Africa that there was, say, the six million and plus in, in Europe. So can we call what happened to North African Jewry a Holocaust? No. No, I don't, I don't, I, I think, and it's, a, we're following, what, I, what I'm doing, what we're trying to do here, I can speak for myself, from the archives. Uh, there is no, the, the, the Holocaust and World War II in Europe impacted what happened in North Africa. The fact that there is a shortage of food, the fact that there are Jews from North Africa who were caught in the, in Paris and in France, and they died. They were they were exterminated in the camps, the death camps in Europe. That's part of the Holocaust. But the idea of that there were Jews who were moved from North Africa to Europe never happened. That never happened. So, but that's why we call it the Holocaust and North Africa. It doesn't mean that there is no connection. There is a connection because why? Because there were anti-Jewish laws that were introduced by the Vichy government as early as summer 1940. And there is a second round, round of anti-Jewish laws that were introduced in 1941. Those did impact the Jews of Algeria, of Morocco, and Tunisia. For instance, the Jews of Algeria lost citizenship that they gained in 1870, according to the Crimea Decree. And once the Vichy government was installed, that citizenship was taken away from them because of those anti-Jewish laws. So those anti-Jewish laws were almost designed following the Nuremberg laws of 1935. So we have a connection there. The death camps, I think we have also to 
to to to understand that the whether the death camps will whether there is a policy or an intention of the death camps. People talk about that, but but I'm talking as I'm here. I'm talking as a historian. So whether the Nazis, the Nazis, what the, the Nazis plan in for the Jews of, of North Africa, there was a consulate, a German consulate, in Casablanca that unfortunately we lost the most majority of its archives in uh, right after Operation Torch, which which by the way we're celebrating 80 years of Operation Torch this coming November. Uh, uh, which basically the American landing or the Allies landing in November 8, 10 in Casablanca and around uh, in Safi and in Sadala in the coastal coast of and in in Algiers. So in Iran. So so this is the, the, there is a connection because of the anti-Jewish laws. These anti-Jewish laws um, forced a lot or led to Jews losing their jobs. As uh, as a journalist or as a um, and as in education, there is a quota of how many Jews can attend school. Uh, so there are some Jews who were forced to move from the new cities to their old quarters called the Malah. So there are there are things that yes, the, um, there is an implicate. What what was designed in Vichy in central in France by the collaboration of government of Vichy of Pétain, General Pétain led by General Pétain, was in, uh, they did definitely affect the Jews of North Africa. Okay, so but given that... the that way we, when you talk ahead, about finish. the camps, it's, it's not. Okay, so now, given that light, so then the question comes up, are Jews from North Africa entitled to reparations? Are they entitled to an exhibit in Holocaust memorials around the world, say like Yad Vashem and Eva's Holocaust Memorial and, and et cetera? Wow, that, you, that's a that's a very tough question for me to answer. But I'll let you. I'll tell you what's what's going on. The conversation between among North African Jews as well as Ashkenazi Jews, and this is in the context of of uh, of Israel. So there is recently a, a law, um, a case, a legal case. I don't read Hebrew, so um, so probably people have to go and look at it. It's the Haifa Haifa by the court of Haifa, I think. That actually made the final case that North African Jews are not um, uh, eligible for that or any. But there are some. Um, there are some because 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 of this argument, and I don't make the connection here, and, and because this is just a recent case. The book was published earlier before COVID times. Um, uh, that that basically that uh, Jews did not the Jews of Morocco. And Tunisia and Algeria did not. Uh, sorry, the Morocco engine and Algeria did not um, uh, fit this category. But you have some camps. Okay, I'll go back to the camps again. Like for instance, there is a camp called the Camp of Tenderara, where there was it was under some form of an indirect German authority. Most of the camps were under the authority of the Vichy government or the Italian government. But there were some camps, with the exception of Tunisia, which was under the control of Germany for about six months, from 1942 to 1943. I think November 1942 to early May 1943, about six months. Uh, and the Germans had their own camps, some of the camps there, that they were in the direct control of, of the Germans. So some camps in Morocco were, to some extent, linked to the German uh, administration. And 
those people who were interned in these camps qualified according to German law for, for reparation. So, but there is a debate. A lot of Moroccans would disagree with because they, they, or they, they argue that the Sultan, Sidi Muhammad bin Yusuf, saved them and did everything he can. Uh, the king of Morocco later on in 1956, who did everything he can to protect them from uh, the German authority, even though, or from the Nazi, from the Vichy, sorry, not the German, from the Vichy authority and the, and the application of the anti-Jewish laws, um, even though the power was under the control of of uh, General Noguès, uh, who was answering to the Vichy, uh, the Vichy government. But there is a lot of, uh, this is a very complicated story because we're, the studies now are being done about what happened, what's the role of the Sultan, how did the Sultan, whether the Sultan, um, uh, uh, what the Sultan did to make sure, to mitigate all the uh, uh, implications of all the laws of the of the of Vichy as well as the Germans. This is the topic of my hopefully my last book, my last co-edited book with on this topic with with uh, one of my colleagues and my mentors, uh, uh, Daniel Schroeter. And the book uh, we're working on is is about this topic. It's about the monarchy, uh, Jews, Holocaust politics, and Moroccan Jews in Israel and and the diaspora to the, from pre 1940s to the present. Okay. That, that we'll look forward to that. Uh, our guest today yeah. has been Professor Omar Baum, who is a professor at UCLA, together with Sarah Stein, has put together a book called The Holocaust and North Africa, and there are several other volumes which have come out since, and we look forward to looking at those as well. We want to thank you so much, Omar, for coming on and enlightening us. Thank you so much for having me. It's been uh, really, I'm looking, I started Listening to your radio show is really fascinating stuff. And okay, thank you. I'll be, I'm going to be a, a regular listener, definitely. Thank you so much. That's a great compliment. <laughs> thank you. We're going to take a quick commercial break, and we'll be right back. You're listening to The Jewish Hour. Want assurance of quality and excellence in kosher? Look for the Michigan K on the label. What's it look like? The Lower Peninsula of Michigan with a K. It's the symbol of the Michigan Kosher Supervisors. Go to their website, mycosup.com. That's M-I for Michigan, K-O for kosher, and S-U-P for supervisors, mycosup.com, and find this month's featured products. You'll find Michigan K products wherever fine food is sold, especially at Natural Food Patch on West Nine Mile Road in Ferndale. Hey, Shulfman here. You're listening to The Jewish Hour. Let's get some music. Let's change the topic. This is a heavy topic. I'm just like, this is like draining. I feel like I've just had a full workout over here. So this is called Simcha Dance, which means a happy dance. And this is Yoni Z. Let's listen.
We all know there's an opiate epidemic, but Advanced Rapid Detox has a solution for people addicted to pain pills, heroin, and dependent on Suboxone and Methadone. Advanced Rapid Detox performs detox under sedation in the hospital. Patients sleep through withdrawals and wake up without cravings. Dr. Julia Aronoff and the staff at Advanced Rapid Detox help people restore their lives and the lives of their families. Addiction affects everyone, even in the Jewish community, and Advanced Rapid Detox is there to help. Call 800-603-1813. That's 800-603-1813. Or visit them online at www.advancedrapiddetox.com. Here you're listening to the Jewish Hour. Up next, a little bit of Klezmer. This is a new group. It's French. They're called the Mittel Orchestra, which I don't know what that means in French. Mittel in Yiddish means the middle, but if you have a middle, that means you must have a beginning and an end. So there's no end orchestra or beginning orchestra, but there's a Mittel Orchestra, and this is a very famous song called the Odessa Bulgar. Thank you. 
Some things are better the way they used to be, like the crisp feel of a cool autumn day, the serenity of a baby sleeping, or the feeling of coming home after a long trip. Franklin Cider Mills makes cider the way cider is supposed to be. Its old-fashioned, clear, crisp taste reminds you of a cool autumn day. Located in the heart of historic Franklin Village at 14 Mile and Franklin Road, Franklin Cider Mill has been making cider the same way for over a century. Always fresh, with no additives or preservatives. You just can't buy Franklin Cider in any supermarket. Franklin Cider Mill is open from Labor Day weekend to after Thanksgiving from 7 a.m. to 6 p.m. Come visit Franklin Cider Mill. It's kind of like coming home. Herschel Fimmon here. You're listening to the Jewish Hour. Yes, Franklin Cider. Everything else is just juice, as the Finman kids would say. We're in our last month. They're only open until the th- weekend after Thanksgiving. And now it's when the, uh, the cider starts getting really cidery. Uh, the apples are like high sugar content. It's darker. This is like, this is the time to go buy apple cider. So there's actually a contest, I think, sponsored by one of the radio stations as to the best cider mill. And so Franklin Cider and uh, a competitor are in the finals. You have to go onto their website and vote and whatever it is. And they ask you all kinds of wonderful personal information so that they can send you all kinds of wonderful stuff on your email. But that's that. Okay, so now we are in the portion of Lech Lecha. Chapter 12 of the book of Genesis and following. There is a story that one day, the first Lubavitcher Rebbe, you're talking 1780s, 1790s, came out into into the synagogue, the study hall, and there are people sitting around, and he said, you know what the problem is? He said, people are not living with the times. And that was it. He left. This is a very perplexing statement because the first Lubavitcher Rebbe was very much against the waves of modernization that were beginning to affect Russia at that time. He liked things just the way they were, and he went out of his way to make sure that they stayed as much as they possibly could, just the way that they were. So the fact that he came out and said, you have to live with the times, was very perplexing. His brother, the rabbi's brother, explained what the rabbi meant was is that you have to live with a portion of the week. Every week there's a new portion, and you have to not just learn it, you have to live with it. And he gives an example. For example, the beginning of the first three portions, you have Breshith, Genesis 1, is starts out really cool, and you have all this like creation stuff going on. Okay, so people get killed here and there, but you know people get killed in the gardens, but it's kind of like a, a mixed portion But it ends, on a good note, it ends on the birth of Noah. Then you have the portion of Noah, which talks about the flood, which is not so cool. But it ends on a good note as well, the birth of Abraham. It's not until we get to this week's portion, the portion of Lechacha, that we have a really cool portion all the way through. Now, it's true that seven of the ten tests that Abraham underwent are in this week's portion. But he passed all of them. So that's like, yes. So we get to live, okay, it's trials and tribulations. Isn't it? Abraham did not have a life with no problems. Everybody since Adam has problems. That's what God promised us. If you're alive and you're breathing, you're going to have problems. But 
as I say. It's not that you have a problem. It's what you have is a solution yet to be found because the solution is there. So don't get excited. Don't get worried. Don't get nervous. Don't get scared. Just get busy and go find the problem. Go find the answer to the problem, to the, the solution to your situation. So Abraham, we see how he acted with such tremendous self-sacrifice for the promulgation of monotheism to such an extent that he bequeathed that sense of a feeling of self-sacrifice for, the, for Judaism to all of us today. That's what we get from this week's portion. That's the takeaway. The takeaway is not that we're learning about the history of Abraham gets thrown into a fire. He has to he move away a thousand miles to a new place. He gets there. There's a drought and he has to a famine and he has to go move to, uh, to uh, Egypt and his wife gets abducted. And then his and nephew gets a, has a problem with his nephew. They have to separate and they have to have a war of four kings and five kings. And he has to go fight against the four kings. And then he's got a, a kid, a Yishmael, who's going off the wrong way, off the path. And it's, it says, that's not, that's, this is not Jewish trivia. This is not history lessons over here. These are, these are lessons, life lessons for us. Each one of these you could spend tremendous amounts of time discussing. Because the bottom line is, he came up with the right answer on every one of those problems. And so we also... The Almighty is going to the Almighty is going to throw hurdles into your life, and the purpose of a hurdle is to run over it, to go over the hurdle, not go around it, not turn around, walk away, go any other way. Nope. The purpose of the hurdle is to go over it, and it's true. No one can run as fast if there's a hurdle. If there's no hurdle, there, it's there. It's going to slow slow a person down, but it's there to go over. And the Almighty has already shown us, he said, listen, if I put the hurdle in front of you, just like Abraham, I put it there, I gave you the strength, I gave you the tools to go over it. So all we have to do is go over it. We're going to take a quick commercial break and we'll be right back. Great story coming up. You're listening to the Jewish Hour. Why go to a hospital to get healthy? At Encompass Healthcare, you get the state-of-the-art wound care like in a hospital. The same medicines, the same everything without being in a hospital. Why put yourself at risk of getting a hospital-borne infection? Did you know that last year, one in six people died in America because of infections they got in hospitals? Encompass Healthcare is an outpatient facility. That means you get your wound care treatment and then go home. There are no wait times at Encompass Healthcare like in ERs. Healthcare is personal and works better, faster, and easier. Encompass Healthcare provides a state-of-the-art outpatient facility close to where you live. Call 248-624-9800. That's 624-9800. Auto accident, workman's comp, and most insurance is accepted. Encompass Healthcare's goal is to get you healthy with as little disturbance to your daily activities. Call 248-624-9800. Herschel Finman here. You're listening to the Jewish Hour. Want to get in touch with me? If you're listening to the podcast on rabbifinman.com, well, just wait till the end of the podcast and flip over to the homepage and hit the contact me. If you're listening on any of the other places where one finds their podcasts, whether that be iTunes or Spotify or iHeartRadio or Odyssey.com or so the, whatever the hosts of them all, they all on. So go to rabbifinman.com and 
click on the home page and you'll see a contact link right there and contact me and I'm open to all kinds of queries and questions and etc and uh, answer all my fan mail pretty much uh, yeah answer all my fan mail there's also archives editions of the radio show there's uh, different media in which we present Judaism and there's also the very important donations page. It's November, Baruch Hashem, October, paid. But it's now November, so we, like the expression goes, you got to pay to play. So you've been sitting here listening and doing whatever you've been doing now for almost close to an hour, and you've hopefully enjoyed it. If you didn't enjoy it, you would have turned it off, that I know. You got this far. So it costs... And we're appealing to you. We do have sponsors. Sponsors take care of about a third of the cost of the putting this together. And uh, we need people like you. We're on air 28 years. And since day one, we have needed your help. And every month, it's like, it's, <laughs> it's like is it going to happen this month? Is what's going to happen? Uh, so there's, there's always that anxiety. And I, thank God, have not learned not to lose sleep over it because every month it seems that... People get up, they step up to the plate, or actually they step up to their computers, their their phones, they go to the donations page, they donate generously. Now, you could do that in such a way. If you have PayPal, you can make it a monthly donation. You don't have to think about it. So we have many people who are doing 5, 10s, 25s that in the course of a year or so will add up. So that's a great thing. So you can do that too or make it a one-time donation um, as you see fit. If you do not like the idea of putting your credit card on the computer, which at this point, I don't know that many people who are still leery of putting their credit card on the computer, especially if it says HTTPS there. So, But if you would like to, you can drop your, your donation into some sort of mailing receptacle and send it to The Jewish Hour. 1725 Pinecrest Drive, Ferndale, Michigan, 48220. And while you're on the computer, you can also check out jewishferndale.com, all the things that we have going on over there, a sister organization. And uh, let me know. We love your feedback. Story involves the fourth Lubavitcher Rebbe, who was known as the Marash Reb Shmuel Schneerson was rabbi from 1866 to 1881, I believe, uh, 83. He, the Schneersons had cousins that were last named Slonim, who moved during the times, I think, of the Mittler Rebbe, during the early 1800s, moved to Jerusalem and, and uh, Hebron. At times, they would come, they'd make a trip. It's a trip. They have to travel by land or maybe get to Haifa and then travel to Istanbul and from Istanbul switch over to cross the uh, the Black Sea to Odessa and then travel from Odessa to, uh, depending on what time we're talking about, by either uh, horse and buggy or later by train. By the, by the memory of Masha's time, there's already a train that existed. It, it took time, and so when people came from Israel, they spent a good couple of months. So this one, one cousin of the Rabbi Marash was uh, talking, and he said that he saw in a book that in Israel, they have, people there have such lofty souls. And he says he's living there his whole life. He, doesn't, he sees simple people, farmers. What kind of lofty souls are we talking about? So the Marash just looked at him and said, and you know about souls? Let me tell you a story. 
in the city of Jerusalem a few years ago, there was a drought, which I'm telling the story because uh, it started raining in Israel today, uh, this week, which is a big thing because in Israel, if it doesn't rain, the economy tanks. So Israel has always been dependent on rain, and it's such that uh, it's prescribed in the, in the Bible and in the, the Talmud that if it doesn't rain, people fast. They prescribe a whole thing of, of periodic fasts through the year. It's a, a whole prescription of fasting on Mondays and Thursdays. So there was a very uh, a simple farmer who lived in, outside in the hills of Judea and outside, and he would come every Monday and Thursday or every Thursday, and he would come to the uh, come to town, and he would sell his his stuff in the farmer's market. Except there it wasn't called the farmer's market; it was simply called the market. And every week he would go to the rabbi because he didn't understand what he was doing. He was an uneducated person. He knew how to read Hebrew, but he didn't understand the words of the preparers. And he did, for sure didn't understand the directions in the prayer books. So he would go to the rabbi, and the rabbi would tell him all the things that were coming up that, that week. So it happened. He came in one Thursday, and all the stores were shuttered, and the streets were emptied. And he thought to himself, was there a holiday this week that the rabbi didn't tell me about? He got really nervous that maybe he's violating the violating the, the, the holiday. But he saw a person walking in, his, uh, in the, the street, and he was carrying his Tolleson's film, which is something we do during the week, non-holidays. So he said, okay, good. So it's not a holiday. So he, the merchant goes over to this, farmer goes over to this person in the street and says, where is everybody? So he says, today's a fast day. The stores are all closed. So he said, the rabbi didn't tell me that there was a fast day. So he got more nervous. I've eaten already. I didn't say the proper prayers for a fast day. I'm so nervous. Oh, I'm anxiety. Oh, I'm woe is me. I'm going to, I'm going to, he ran immediately to the rabbi's house. The rabbi's wife says he's still in the synagogue. He runs to the synagogue, falls in, crying, rabbi, rabbi, what have I done? What have you done? Ah, save me. He says, what are you talking about? He said, you didn't tell me there was a fast day today. So he said, the Jews of Jerusalem are fasting because it hasn't rained. You're not part of Jerusalem, so you don't have to fast. So you're okay. Don't worry about it. So the guy was like, oh, good. He says, but wait a minute. Why are you fasting? He says, the rabbi says, so what do you do when you need rain? He says, I don't fast. I go just go out into the field, and I pray to God, and it rains. So the rabbi says to him, okay, go ahead. So we went outside, this farmer, farmer, simple farmer, can't hardly read. And he started crying, Rabbeinu Shalom, the city, of, the holy city of Jerusalem needs rain. Do you want your, your children to starve of famine and drought? And it started raining. So the Marash told his cousin, he said, and you don't see that there are lofty souls living in Israel? That's going to do it. We hope you had a chance to entertain you a bit. We hope you have a chance to educate you a bit. We hope you have a great week. We hope to see you back again next week. Take care.
three-star general, Michael J. Flynn, head of the Pentagon Intelligence Agency, knew all the government's dirty secrets. He was one of the most respected generals in the military. Flynn knew what the intel world had been up to. He understood its funding. He ordered the first audit of the use of contractors. This set off alarm bells. The explosive new documentary, Flynn, deliver the truth, whatever the cost, and covers the facts behind this scandal. Flynn told the truth. He was the most dangerous person for Donald Trump to hire. I find out the worst enemy that I'm going to face in my life is right here in America. They took my assessment and they wanted me to change it. I was like, I'm not changing it. They had to get rid of Flynn. With in-depth interviews, archival footage, and never-before-seen personal records of the man behind the headlines. I just felt like I was drowning. Flynn. Deliver the truth, whatever the cost. Available now. Watch it today. Go to salemnow.com. salemnow.com.